Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 75. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our guest is an excellent juggler with a first-class social media game, Taylor Glenn. Before we get to the conversation, though, let's thank the International Jugglers Association for sponsoring this podcast. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. All right, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Taylor Glenn. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 75. My special guest, juggler, and YouTube sensation, Taylor Glenn. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course, it's my real pleasure. It was nice to see you at the EJC and as other festivals across the, the period of time we've known each other. But I really don't know much about the past, Taylor. I only know the, the recent Taylor. Let's go back to the beginning of the Taylor Glenn story. Where were you born and what were your parents, what did your parents do? Do you have any siblings? What was the young Taylor Glenn like? <laughs> well, uh, I was a hyper little child and I did a lot of different sports and a lot of activities and couldn't really find anything to keep my hands busy until juggling came along. And around 12 years old, I learned how to juggle and that was great. This is in Salt Lake City? Yeah, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah which is, some people might know it as the place that Delaney was born. Oh, so, I didn't know that. You know, that's, yeah, it's pretty cool. She's, uh, I'm not the best female juggler from Utah, which is tough, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, you're talking about Delaney Bales, this year's uh, team winner with Zach McAllister? Yeah. Did you actually have any contact with her, or did you leave before uh, she had any presence in, in Salt Lake City? I taught her... Oh. For about a month or two before she got better than me. So there was a point where I helped Delaney Bales get better, and then she surpassed me pretty quick. <laughs> and why do you think she surpassed you? Was it just more of a dedication or natural talent? I don't think it was either of those things. I do. I think for me growing up, I had a lot of dedication, and I don't know about talent, but I definitely had skill. You know, people said that I learned quickly, and they were surprised at how quickly I learned when I went to clubs and when I went to festivals. But I do think her family had a lot to do with it. From the get-go, you could tell that Delaney's father was very supportive. And I think that he gave her the means and, like, the time and the space to practice her juggling. And you asked about my family. And, you know, I grew up with a single mom. didn't really know my dad much. Uh, and my mom worked a lot. And so we didn't have, like, space to juggle. We had a small house, small ceilings, and couldn't afford to go anywhere and do it. I wasn't a member of a church or anything, so I didn't have access to a place to juggle. And on top of that, my mom was a single mom, and so she had, there was a lot of pressure to get good grades and succeed in school so that I could eventually go on and get a scholarship um, because that was pretty much the only way I was gonna get to go to college. There just wasn't really a focus on juggling. When juggling became a big part of my life, I think if anything, it kind of scared my mom. And that I think, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I love my mom. I don't mm -hmm. blame her or anything like that. I think that she did a great job raising me. I, I, I do see a difference with some of these amazing young jugglers that you see that are coming up or that have come up like Wes Peden. One of the through lines that I see is a parent who really, really, really encourages and takes the time to help make it possible. And I think that that's a deciding factor. Do you think it's hard for a parent to understand what juggling is, you know, what it really is, or do they just have this perception of juggling, which is sort of the basic perception in the community of, oh, it's the da 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 da
do you think they actually understand when you say you want to juggle or they're interested in juggling that the beautiful art form it is? Or do you think they have just such a basic understanding of it that they can't really comprehend the overall concept of it? You know, that's an interesting question. I think I would say even like with my mom, I think she understood what it was. I think she could see that it was bigger than just the typical circus clown that you see in cartoons. But I think that there's a, a lack of understanding for some parents of how valuable it is, mm-hmm. I guess, um, and how good of exercise it is, and how good it is for your brain. And, and in a lot of cases, like what the social effect of it can be and how for some people like me, you know, I grew up kind of an introvert and a loner. I was really hyper and I seemed very extroverted, but I was also very lonely as a kid. And so for me, juggling really created a great atmosphere and a great community that was probably the most important part for me. And it continues to be to this day. I think that that's the part that maybe parents can underestimate sometimes. At least that's what I saw. And do you think that's another through line, the lonely child? Because I was also very lonely as a kid. And I was interested in magic, but I always felt like you had to show somebody magic, but juggling was something you could do by yourself. Do you think that yeah. being lonely attracts people to an, uh, to an activity like juggling? I think, uh, especially up until this point, I think it has, yeah. I think it's something that, you know, I've noticed that a lot of the people in the juggling community are a little introverted or socially awkward loners, kind of, who didn't fit in to regular mainstream sports or regular activities really and so they gravitated towards more alternative hobbies like rubik's cube or or juggling right and or spinning tops and i think or kadama yeah kadama (laughs) i think that's definitely a pattern i think it's changing a little bit though i'm seeing just with trends online i'm seeing people gravitating more to it because they think it's cool which i think is like a shift that's happening and i think that that's really exciting (laughs) It's hard, right? Because the more the juggling becomes cooler, uh, the more people you get into it for different reasons than just they wanted a community or they wanted to find a place where they belong. And so there's a double-edged sword there, right? It becomes more popular, but then you may also lose a little bit of that tight-knit community that we have right now. So I'm I'm personally excited to see where it goes. But And what did you think about juggling before you tried it? Would you have any exposure to juggling uh, before you turned 12? And what helped you learn juggling at 12? Did someone teach you or did you learn from a book? I do remember I taught myself how to juggle. I was playing baseball at the time. I love baseball. And I played that for a lot of my childhood. And I just remember being in the dugout one day and I was bored because somebody was up to bat and they weren't very good. And I wanted to do something. So I picked up three baseballs and I taught myself. And I think it took me like, you know, it was a really slow practice and And I sat there and I figured it out. And I know nobody taught me. And I don't recall if I'd seen it before or where I'd seen it before. But I'm sure that throughout 12 years of your life as a child, you come across a juggler somewhere. And I'm sure that I just absorbed it and remembered it. And that helped me teach teach myself. But no, nobody taught me. And I don't recall seeing like, oh, that's the moment where (laughs) there was a juggler that inspired me or anything like that. A lot of people want to learn to juggle. Like the accomplishment of juggling three balls five or six throws, they're like, okay, I can juggle, that's enough. What made you want yeah. to take it past that? Oh, I'm competitive. I think that that's why. I played sports growing up a lot, like I said, and I, I think that was part of the reason why I was kind of lonely was that people didn't like me much because <laughs> I was uh, a little hyper-competitive kid that didn't understand why other people didn't want to be competitive with me, but it's because I was 
just slightly better at everything than them. So it wasn't really fun for anyone else. Yeah, I was very competitive. And so when I figured out juggling, it was like, oh, I can be competitive with myself. This is great. I don't have to have somebody else to play with me. And that has continued on. I mean, that's why we practice a little bit, right? Is this, this desire to push ourselves and to outdo ourselves. But in like a positive way, when I say competitive, I don't mean that I've ever been, you know, I'm not like a, a mean competitive person. I just like to grow and push. And I love it when another person's involved with that. But at the very least, being able to do it with myself is awesome. <laughs> and after 12, did you start seeing other jugglers? Did you sort of see, uh, I, this might be a silly question, but was YouTube around at that time? And were you able to compare your skills to others? No, YouTube was not yet around. It didn't come around until I was about 16. But when I was 12, I, I learned how to juggle and I said, cool, did that. Let's move on. And so I started getting into spinning tops, actually. A friend of mine also had one. And so we would play. We were not good. We would just spin the tops over and over again. <laughs> but when I was at his house one day, his father was friends with a man named Dale Meyerberg, who is a, uh, he's known as the yo-yo man in Utah. I know Dale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he was over there. And I think maybe he was involved with how my friend learned spinning tops and all that. He was a jack-of-all-trades type of guy. Uh, and he was doing some yo-yo stuff, and he was doing spinning tops. And then he's like, oh, do you want to see some juggling? And I was cocky little tailor. was like, well, I can juggle. And I started juggling for him. And he's like, oh, well, can you do, like, some tricks? I can teach you tricks. And it blew my mind. I remember <laughs> him doing Hill's Mess and, and like, one-up, two-ups and all these tricks. And as a kid, I was just like, oh, yeah. I don't know all of juggling. And so that... I remember he taught me a few, and then that just sparked me. From there, I started going to the local juggling club, which eventually Delaney Bayless would be part of, and Christopher Hosser would also be part of. So. And do you have any uh, favorite jugglers to watch who inspire you? And, and why are they your favorites? Is it is a combination of technical skill and creativity, or just a certain vibe about them? Now? Like today? Yeah, just overall in general, like over, throughout your entire juggling career, were there ones who inspired yeah. you early, and are there ones now who have helped you see all the possibilities of juggling? Well, when YouTube first came on the scene, I remember being incredibly inspired by Volvo Galchenko's Fat Boy Slim video, as were a lot of jugglers. I watched that video so many times as a teenager, just blown away. And I'm still blown away when I watch it. It's just an intense skill. And at the time, it was probably the best produced juggling video out there. And then throughout juggling... Since then, I, I've always been a big fan of Michael Karras. I think that he brings a lot of creativity to both juggling and video work, and that's great. And now, times have changed a little bit to where things are really focused on Instagram for me. I see a lot of my favorite jugglers now on Instagram, and that's changed a lot. And my favorite juggler to watch is honestly a man named Bob Beck, which I don't think a lot of people have heard of. He doesn't have a lot of followers or anything, but he's a, an, you know an older gentleman, and he... He just does crazy three ball tricks. And I think he learned how to juggle about a year ago. And he just sits there and he does tricks that are very accessible to me, which I love, but they're super creative. And so he's currently my favorite juggler to watch. Oh, I'm going to check him out. So that's B-E-C-K, Bob Beck. Yeah. And his Instagram is at Bob CB 58. So if anyone wants to go follow Bob, go do that. He's great. <laughs> now I'm not doing Instagram myself. Am I missing something? Oh, yeah. Should I be doing Instagram? I should be doing that. <laughs> You're missing a lot of my videos. Oh, am I? I see, are there more than I see on Facebook and stuff like that? Or? Oh, well, that's true. The same videos I post on Instagram are all posted on Facebook. But 
yeah, Facebook, uh, Instagram, though, you are going to miss a lot of the juggling community right now, especially the international community. I think that uh, a lot more Latin America and South American people are posting on Instagram, and they're amazing. <laughs> I'm very impressed with uh, Josh Horton and what he's doing. Uh, do you ever take part in his videos? And, and you're both down in L.A. Do you ever collaborate with him? Yeah. Josh and I have been friends for a long time. And oh, great. He, he's actually helped me a lot with just over the last couple years with my exploration of the social media world. And I, I super appreciate all his help because he's making a living off of it and doing some great stuff. And yeah, recently we were, I learned how to do some trick shots from Josh, which was extremely hard. And I have a YouTube video on that. And then I participated in one of his videos as well. And by trick shot, you mean with basketballs? Yeah, which is really hard for me because I don't play basketball. Yeah. I saw a recent one he had with baseball players. That seems like something that would be in your, in your league. Yeah, I helped him film one of... Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, I, it might have been that one if there was like four, four or five baseball players. There were. I think that's why I mentioned it, because I think I saw something about him thanking you. Yeah, it, that is like the uh, the trouble with YouTube as well, right? Is you, you have people trying to make 10-minute-plus videos because of the algorithm. And as opposed to Instagram, where it's, it's under 60 seconds, it's very fast. YouTube is the opposite. It's very long. And so you do sometimes get repetitiveness, which I struggle with as well. Now, why is it important to have a 10-minute video? Is there something about the, the views if you have a longer video? Um, it basically comes down to the fact that YouTube wants people to watch videos longer, as much mm -hmm. time as possible. So if you have them hooked on a video, they want them, the longer your video is, the more ads will play and the more people are watching. So the algorithm will help feed more things towards your videos if your videos are getting a lot of views, but also getting a lot of watch time. And so mm. the longer your video, the more watch time. But that can be hard to do. It can be a double-edged sword and it can backfire. If your video is too long and it's boring, then you're not gonna get any views. Well, I wouldn't say it was boring. I think I was more looking for information about Taylor Glenn. There wasn't enough Taylor Glenn on it for my taste, I guess. That's what I'm <laughs> I'll tell I'm him that. To say. Now, is there a way to monetize Instagram or is that something that's just a way to get your name out there? That's an interesting question because that's something I struggle with. For the last almost two years, uh, for a year and a half of that, I was posting on Instagram every single day. And that was really hard and a really big undertaking, but it ended up making my channel grow a lot. And now I'm at 137,000 followers, which is crazy to me. A lot of people ask, well, does that, do you get paid for that? That must be your full-time job. And the answer is definitely no. Instagram itself does not pay me whatsoever. Uh, the closest thing I get to making money off Instagram is occasionally I'll get a, an ad, like a, a sponsored post where a sunglasses company will ask me to wear their product or oh. talk about their product. And then make a video about it mm -hmm. and then they'll pay me for that. I have made some money on Instagram, definitely, but it's, that's not why I've done it. And it's definitely not my main job. Now your main job is a film editor. Is that correct? Yeah, it has been for the last six years. I've lived in LA. I moved from Salt Lake to LA and immediately got a job as a, an assistant editor out here. And that was good, but I had a hard time after about five years of it with the long hours and the, the work-life balance and just a lot of the things about the film industry, I kind of became disillusioned by it and got really depressed. And so now for the last six months, I've taken off of work from that and I've done some freelance stuff. I've worked for some people doing small video projects, 
but I guess you could say I'm unemployed <laughs> right now. Well, it says here on your past that I understand assistant editor. It also, mm-hmm. says, it also says you were a former T-1000. Is that some yeah. sort of Terminator? What, what's a T-1000 and what's a T-1000 do? I can't talk about it too much, but let's just say that it... <laughs> Is this a government uh, secret program? Yeah, it's given me a lot of skills that I've used in a lot of ways, so got to just keep it at that, I think. <laughs> okay, so we'll keep the T-1000 identity a mystery, whatever mm-hmm. that is. All right. <laughs> at one point, you had a goal to juggle every day. Was that part of this Instagram video series? Yeah, I don't know if I had like a clear goal to juggle every day, but I definitely had a goal to post every day. And oh, I gotcha. for most of that, that was juggling. I would say like 90% of it was juggling and it resulted in me pretty much juggling every day. Even the days that I maybe would post something of like a ukulele or something, I still knew that I wanted to post more videos and juggling was definitely the easiest way to do that. And so it kind of forced me in a good way to juggle every day. And now I still keep that up, uh, even if it's just for a little bit. I pretty much juggled every day, which is new for me, because for, I think, five or six years, I stopped juggling completely. Oh. And it's fun to get back. When, when was that? And was that because of work? Why, why this hiatus? Yeah, it was the end of college and then pretty much working here in L.A. It, it was just, it takes a back seat because work gets in the way and life gets in the way. When you're working 10 or 12 hour days, it just, it becomes, for me, it became the last thing on my mind and I was exhausted and stressed out. So juggling just wasn't doing much for me anymore. But I actually found, you know, and like I mentioned, it spurred me into a slight depression, not a slight depression, a pretty deep depression. I was in, I was pretty severely depressed for a while. And I think incorporating juggling back into my life has helped a lot. And the structure that it offers. Now, as far as juggling and depression, do you feel that you got back into the juggling because you were depressed and you were looking for something to help you or did you sort of realize as you did it that it helped your depression? A little bit of both. I think that the, the goal to post on Instagram really stemmed from depression for me because I was in a really dark place and my biggest thing that I was, was struggling with was just feeling kind of like a failure, which I know for a lot of people, they look at me and they say, well, that doesn't make any sense. But when your brain isn't working, that's something that it can tell you. And for me, I would think that all the time. I thought I am a failure. I'm never going to be good enough at anything. I'm never going to be great at juggling. I'm never going to be great at work. I'm never going to be, I'm always going to be alone. All these horrible things that go through your brain. And when I was thinking of ways to just help that in a little, little tiny way, I came up with the idea of posting on Instagram every day. I mean, it it sounds silly, but it was it was pretty much every day I would feel like I couldn't accomplish anything because I was depressed and because I was working on projects that weren't mine and things that I wasn't passionate about. And so I just felt stifled. And so by posting something really tiny, even if it was 10 seconds every day, I at least could give myself some slack and feel like I did make some progress. What the progress was towards, I don't know, but it was moving forward. And because juggling was such an integral part of that, I think that that I'm incredibly thankful for that because juggling is physical. It's good exercise. It's good for you. And then on top of that, doing it every day and feeling accomplished every day really, really helped. And so absolutely juggling has helped with my depression. And anyone struggling with depression, I think creating habits like that and setting goals that are smaller and more attainable, like juggling every day for 10 minutes, can really help with your 
your psyche. And how long does it take to make an Instagram video? Is it kind of instantaneous or is there a whole process that goes into it? I get that a lot. I get that question and I get people that use it as a reason to not do it. Because for me, the answer is it usually takes me about two hours from start of filming to finish of editing to pushing the post button. It takes me about two hours. That being said, you know, I put a lot of production into mine. I put a lot of thought into like every aspect of it. I don't want people to not post on Instagram just because they feel like they have to put two hours in every day. A lot of people I see have a phone and they have clips of themselves juggling or doing things, but they try to create reasons to not post because they're afraid of putting themselves out there. And that really makes me sad because I think that people should share more of what they're doing and they shouldn't be so intimidated because I used to be intimidated, right? I used to feel like, oh, I'm never gonna be as good as Wes Peden, so I don't have a voice. And that's not true. I mean, that's clearly not true. People have responded really well to my voice. And so when people are contemplating posting on social media or sharing their art or their passion, stop making excuses about it. If it, you can do it in 10 minutes. You can take a video on your phone and post it right then. You don't have to edit it. You don't have to add music. You can do the bare minimum. For me, I do a little bit more, but for anyone else contemplating doing it, like start with that. <laughs> and, and that's a big thing for me. Like Taylor tries is my, my social media handle, but it was supposed to be partly me trying, but also trying to encourage other people to try and not be so afraid of failing because that's part of it. Well, I think that's one thing that makes your videos unusual and unique is that you include failures. You include the, the awkward drop, yeah. the awkward look, where most people are just trying to perfect and only showing a perfect image of what they are and what their juggling is like. So I like that about your videos. Thanks. And that's something I've actually done a long time. When YouTube first came on the scene back in 2006 or something, I started posting on it and I started making videos and my videos were really kind of crappy, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I definitely kept that idea. I mean, I just thought, yeah, I'm gonna show how awkward this is. And if you watch some of my videos back from 2007 or 2008, I'm dropping all over the place and I'm making funny faces. And it's fun for me to kind of see how that's transformed into what I do now. But I think the same Taylor is there and it's really fun. <laughs> now, do you have a particular YouTube video that you would say is your favorite or if someone's not aware of you and you say, look, start with this video to kind of get an overall idea of who I am and what I do. Is there one yeah. that stands out as, as the, your personal favorite? Yeah, there's one video I came out with right at the beginning of this whole social media process, and it was called Catch Me. I put a lot of work into it, and the whole idea was of it was juggling in front of these beautiful murals, but I'm also, there's two of me. So there's times when I'm interacting with myself and throwing objects to myself, and I'm really proud of that video. That video took a long time. It was kind of the first one that I did that really looked professional and that one's great i highly recommend that now if you want to go back and see some of my older ones like my favorite old one which is honestly probably my favorite <laughs> video there's one called oh man see now i can't remember it this is not good oh no take take your time we can we can like i say we can have this part out while you're thinking Okay. <laughs> yeah. Did you look it up or something? Or? Yeah, I'll look it up because okay. there's one that I love and I just... Yeah, yeah, no problem. We're very casual here on the Drop Everything podcast, so... <laughs> I personally am just wearing a Speedo and uh, flip-flops, so... Oh, nice. Me too. And a Viking helmet, just to have a special <laughs> touch. Here it is. Oh, yeah. So my favorite video back from the day was called Wicked, and it's just a 
I think it's me at my peak dorkiness. And so if you want to see young, slightly chubby Taylor doing a video, you should go check out Wicked. Okay, so the other, the other one was called Catch Me, is that right? Mm-hmm, Catch Me, yeah. Catch Me and Wicked. Okay, so those people listening, go to YouTube and check out some of uh, Taylor's videos. Do it. Do it. Now, I recently saw you at the EJC. Yeah. It was a, a fun experience. And what festivals have you been to? And you've been starting to perform recently. Which festivals have you performed at? That's a big question. <laughs> I've been in the juggling community for over 10 years. I learned how to juggle when I was young, but I've been in the community for around mm -hmm. 10 years, right? A little bit more than that. And so I've gone to festivals quite a bit, mostly the West Coast festivals. I mean, I've been to IJAs various times and I love those. Those are still my favorite. They'll always be home for me. And I love Portland. I think Portland is one of my favorite regional festivals. And I actually got to perform there last year, which was a huge honor for me. Boulder, I've gone to uh, Game of Throws is a new one that's been really fun. Got to perform at that as well. And last year I got to perform, which I'd never been to. So that was really a treat for me. And then this past year, I had the honor of getting to go abroad and go to a couple new festivals. Like I got to go to the Guatemalan Festival and the Mexican Festival and then Afghanistan and Europe. So those were incredibly amazing for me. Yeah, I think I heard about one of your performances. I think it might have been from Portland. Mm -hmm. But you surprised people. People are like, you know who was good? Taylor Glenn. That's awesome. As if they were surprised. Yeah, but it was like... I don't know how to take that. And you did a, a glow ball routine, right? A glow ball routine? Yeah, I that routine. I love glow props, and I I put a lot of time working onto this in, in this one routine. I took about six months of building this suit, this complicated suit that I made from scratch with EL wire, and like I had to learn how to solder and program and all this crap. And the idea was that I, I start by juggling glow balls and people think, oh, it's a regular glow ball routine. But then like a minute in, I light up and my whole suit lights up and it's all choreographed to the music and the, the balls change color to the music. The suit changes colors to the music. It was really an undertaking and I was really proud of it and I'm glad people liked it. It was also very intimidating to, to perform and I retired that routine because there's a lot of technical problems with it. I never had anything actually go wrong on stage. Every time I performed it, it went great, but there was a lot of close calls and it was just way too much stress. Well, whenever you're doing with something uh, technical like that, I remember talking with Dan Menendez about his piano juggling. Yeah. And, and the times where it just didn't work. And all of a sudden you're just, you're just out of luck, right? When yeah. something doesn't work, it's hard to recover from that. Well, and it's hard to do that at a, for me, the added pressure of being at a juggling convention where it's my peers and I don't want to let them down. I mean, I guess it wouldn't be any better if it was a client, but for me, I really care about the community. And I, as a new performer, it would have made me feel horrible if I had totally dropped the ball or whatever. Now, in your career as a juggler, did you ever think about doing it as a full-time performer or, or moving into more of a, a paid professional juggling type of career? The closest I got was um, after my first year of college, I got really burned out. I was studying engineering and I, I realized that I didn't want to do that and I, I just couldn't see my life going that direction. So I took a year off and I applied to NICA, which is the circus school in Australia, because I was like, oh, I'll go be a juggler. Yeah, I'm good at juggling. Let's do that. <laughs> Uh, they didn't accept me. It was kind of a blow. <laughs> they were like, I think the exact quote was, your juggling is too good, but you don't know anything else. And I 
I was pretty heartbroken. But it was a blessing in disguise. I ended up going into film anyway, so it was great. But that was the closest I ever got to really feeling like I wanted to perform. In reality, I don't think I'm a natural performer that way. I'm very good on camera, and I love being on camera. But when there's like a live audience in front of me, it it scares me a lot. I, I do enjoy it. It's something I want to get better at, but it's not something I I like need in my life, and it's not something I thrive on. So the idea of making that my job is just not, doesn't sound great. It's not for everybody. And I think uh, now it's even a harder profession than it was yeah. when, I was, when I started. So it is difficult to be in front of people, especially juggling, which has so inherently risky, uh, ego-wise, not necessarily physically dangerous, but very risky to the ego, you know, to be up there. Well, and I think you have to be really funny. Like, I mean, I don't think you have to be, right? But I think it helps if you're very funny. Like, you're you're a very talented comedian, and I think that makes you enjoyable to watch as a juggler and performer. For me, I think I'm funny in a different way, but the idea of getting up on stage and being funny on command is really... I, I don't know if I could do that. I think you could. I think it's a matter of preparation. I think you're very you're very smart and clever. I think it's not. I think nothing's without with outside of your range. It's just maybe the fear of it or the unknown of it. Yeah. But I bet you if you had a if you had a, a routine that you perfected, that you rehearsed and had it down. Yeah. That you'd be quite good. That you have a natural sort of humorous. Uh, oh, well, thanks. Way about you. Well, I mean, it comes across in the videos, in a, in a, in a physical way. Oh, that's really nice. Well, I do have like aspirations with performing. I do want to perform more. Mostly, you know, someday I haven't given up the desire to eventually compete in the IJ stage competition. I, I don't have any illusions that I'm going to win, but I would love to just get on that stage just once and say that I did it. That's still a dream of mine. And then I'd love to perform on the IJ stage. So those two things will happen for me someday. And I just have to put the time in to make it happen. You know what's a bit sad is I think about that too. I think about maybe I should compete again. <laughs> maybe I could go back and, and try to win. I never won. So maybe I could try to come back and actually practice really hard for six months and get really back into it. Yeah, do it. We'll compete at the same time. <laughs> maybe a team act. Maybe we'll, we'll put a team act together over, yeah. over the over video. Now, you briefly mentioned your trip to Afghanistan. That was yeah. with Aaron Stevens for one of the IRCs. Is that right? Yeah. What was that experience like? That must have been crazy. It was incredible. Yeah, Aaron approached me with the IJA a bit before that and asked me if I would be interested in coming and documenting and shooting the the festival and then also help and teach and coach some of the kids. And of course, you know, there's a part of me that went, oh no, Afghanistan, what? And then the other part of me said, yes, of course, you have to do that. So I got over the fear part and with a lot of help from Erin, who has been before, and she's just incredible. We went, and it was an amazing experience. I, It really has changed me. I mean, for <laughs> that sounds kind of cheesy, but it has. It's It was a lot of culture shock. It opened up my brain and my worldview in a lot of ways, and I'm really thankful for it. It also gave me a huge appreciation for juggling that I didn't quite have the same way. Now, as a female in Afghanistan, were you restricted to wearing certain clothing or going to certain places. Uh, what was that like? You know, it was partly being female. I mean, obviously, the women in Af Afghanistan do wear different clothing than the men. The women have to wear 
or choose to wear, have to wear, it's hard to say, but they their culture involves women wearing long sleeve shirts and long pants and then a dress over it and then a head head covering. So while I was there, I chose to respect that along with Aaron and we wore those outfits. I found it difficult, mostly in the sense that it was just really hot, but I didn't find it that difficult to respect another person's culture. I think growing up in Utah really prepared me for that because I tend to be somebody that doesn't mind showing skin and I don't, I don't have any like religious um, backgrounds that prevent me from that and modesty. But I do, growing up in Utah, I did choose to respect a lot of that there. My family is, a lot of my family is Mormon and there's rules about garments and how much skin you can show and how short your shorts can be and all these things. So for me, it really didn't feel that abnormal to slightly change your appearance to make other people comfortable. And that's basically what that was like in Afghanistan. Uh, Yeah. And how was the skill level out there? Were they pretty advanced? Had they been exposed to the sort of modern juggling styles? Or was it a bit primitive? I didn't get the impression that they had been exposed to much of the Western or the European juggling. That being said, they were very good. The kind of unique thing about the Afghani jugglers was that they pretty much can only do it until they're in their early 20s or in a lot of cases until they're 18. So what you would see is a lot of people that are really good under the age of 18, but then no like adult jugglers because at that point they have to move on and get a family and get a career and all these things. And juggling just isn't an option past that point. And so it really stuck with me how meaningful juggling was in these kids' lives because as the instructor said, he said, this is the best time of their lives. Like this is the most fun they will ever have. And it really, really made me appreciate the fact that, you know, when I'm 80, I could still pick up juggling balls if I want. If I'm 50, I can go to a juggling festival. Whereas these kids, it's just not how their culture works. So once they're 18, they pretty much have to move on. That being said, they are extremely good for being under 18. Um, they're in a war-torn country and they don't have a lot of means to play and be kids. And so when they're given juggling balls and said, play, they just eat it up. And so you have nine-year-olds that are running seven balls. And not only are they doing seven balls, they're doing seven tennis balls. It's ridiculously hard, the props that they're using. And then the tricks and the skill that they're achieving with that is incredible. But they're also pretty much just doing (laughs) endurance things and they know very few tricks, which is part of why Aaron and and I went out there was to help them learn performance and tricks. And that's why the IRCs are incredible because they're exposing them to this bigger world of juggling. And there was, I think, nine IRCs this year. Is that, are, do you have any plans to be involved with any future IRCs? My goal is to go help and like, you know, help facilitate and just volunteer. But I don't know if I could do the video side like I've been doing. This year, yeah, I went to Europe European one, the Mexican one, the Guatemalan one, and the Afghanistan one. And I've been in charge of going through all that footage and editing videos for the IJ. And while that's incredibly satisfying and rewarding, and I'm glad to help, it's been really stressful. And along with doing all my content, it's just hard to balance it. So I don't know if I'll be able to help in that same way, but I would love to help in the future. Because that's a volunteer position. So all that extra work is basically on top of your own personal workload. Right. They did. The IJA was able to pay for the travel, 
which is something, but none of yeah. it, I didn't get paid any money to like pay my bills. So it's tough, but everyone pretty much in the IJ is a volunteer. So that's what everyone's doing is volunteering their time. And I think it's incredible. Now it seems like these IRCs also have a lot more sort of male, female equality, the ones I've seen. Yeah, around the world, it's a lot better than America. <laughs> now, why do you think, I mean, I don't want to put you as the spokesman for all women, but why do you think more women aren't drawn to juggling, maybe it's the competition? Uh, how do we get, or maybe a better question is, how do we get more women involved in juggling? Um, at the IJA Festival, we have the Flamingo Club, which I help run with Sophia, who's also on the board of the IJA. We meet every IJA Festival with all the women and also men who want to be a part of the conversation. And last year we talked about how do we do that? How do we get more women specifically at the IJA, which I think is where it's kind of the example of American juggling. And yeah, it's been very clear traveling across the world, how the female male ratio here is definitely lacking compared to the rest of the world and especially Europe and South America. And I think that there's a couple reasons for that, honestly. In America, we have slightly different values that we put on men and women. And I think as a result, yeah, you do tend to maybe get women that are less competitive or maybe less comfortable being in the spotlight, which uh, I think is just kind of a part of our culture. And at the IJA or any big festival or any festival, really, it can become really apparent and there's like less to do, right? If the main things are competitions and shows and you don't necessarily instill in young women this this desire or even confidence to do those things, you can look at that and say, well, what's the value for me? Then you get issues with being, being parents and we still have a culture where women are the primary caregivers for kids. And when you say, oh, go drop everything and go to a festival, you know, that can be really hard on mothers. I think that's part of it is creating an environment where kids can be more involved and more accepted. And then on top of that, there's also a cultural shift that needs to happen, I think, with men in, and this is everywhere, honestly, like why I think that we have less women. I mean, we do have a lot of great women jugglers. I want to say that. There are some amazing women jugglers out there. It's getting bigger every year. Tricky Chicks highlights a lot of them. Uh, I think a lot of people are unaware of how many great women jugglers there are. I don't think it's as big of a a disparity as it seems, but I still think there is a disparity. And for me, I think the biggest reason is creating an atmosphere where women feel comfortable and safe. I think every woman that I've talked to has gone to a festival and had an experience where they felt cornered by like a big group of men, or they felt not harassed, but kind of uncomfortably stalked or something by men. Or, and, and there's situations like that, which can be really confusing. And I think for for a group of men like in the juggling community when we all are kind of socially awkward and struggling with those things anyway to add the extra dynamic of oh now it's a pretty girl I think that can be really hard and so I totally understand that but I think just teaching guys and teaching guys in the juggling community how to be around women I think would make women more comfortable and make women feel a part of the space and then not there's the added thing of online you can be a part of that space. And for me, I post a lot and yet I still get a lot of comments. And I did when I first started, especially got comments about how I wasn't good enough and how the only reason I'm getting 
views is because I'm a girl and people only like me because I'm pretty or all these things. And comments like that really, really make women not want to be a part of a community. Because if you're telling me my only value in my community comes from being a girl, then what's the point of me practicing? And so things like that, uh, the shift that I think men and women have to do of seeing themselves better and not just seeing women for being women. Well, this year we had a, a we had a femigade. Is that what it was called? Yeah. A, a, a purely female renegade show. Did you? Ta- I didn't go to that. Did you take part in that? I unfortunately see very few renegade shows. I'm... I went, but I again I was just a little too nervous about being a performer and all that. So I just I I did not perform. Next year. I'd like to see that be an annual thing. That would be a good annual event to have a, a space. Or do you think that's patronizing to have a space for female performers, like exclusively? No, absolutely not. You know, I, that's a conversation that I've seen in the juggling community a lot is creating spaces for minorities. And I think some people see it as a divisive thing where we should all be coming together. We shouldn't create divided spaces. But I, I think that's incorrect. I think it can be really valuable to have things like the Flamingo Club or a Femigade where women feel more accepted or I don't like the word safe, but just more mm-hmm. at home and more represented. And so, yeah, for me, it's like the idea of performing at a renegade scares the crap out of me for a bunch of reasons, partly for being overtly sexualized or, and then partly for like a lot of reasons. And so having a femigade, I think would just make me feel way more accepted and supported in that because I know that I'm not going to stick out and be the only girl, and so I'm not going to be the only one getting catcalled or the only one getting this or whatever. And then on top of that, it's just this empowering thing to have a lot of female energy up on a stage, and you feel like it's a little more for you and a little less for like the men in the audience. I think the only downside that I could see it sort of being a slippery slope, because recently we had a thing on one of the uh, pages on Facebook that wasn't as accepting of, of the, the homosexual community. Right. As, as it should have been. I'm a big believer in, in equality of, of, of every situation, you know, when it comes to sexual orientation or race. But just we have then a, a, a you know, a, a show for our, our gay performers. So mm-hmm. we have a show for our African-American performers. At what point does it become kind of ludicrous or, or overkill to a degree? I mean, honestly, I don't think it does. That's one thing that I really enjoyed about EJC. I mean, EJC had... Scandigade, right? Which was like the Scandinavian renegade. And they'd have, uh, they have renegades for different things like that. And I like the idea of, honestly, if you wanted to do an LGBTQ renegade, and even if there was another renegade happening at the same time, I think that the more the merrier. And if we can figure out a way to all coexist and highlight all the things that we love, then go for it. It's the same reason I think that we should absolutely have like a Diablo only competition and a kendama competition and like all these different things. I, I think there's room for all of it. I think what will end up happening is if it gets so big that there's so many groups, it'll be like EJC where you have to pick and choose which ones you go to. And that can have some problems, but I don't think that that's a reason to not do it. Well, we were both judges at the individual prop competition this year. And that's certainly, this, I love the idea of a Diablo only competition, to be honest. Yeah. I've always felt that the Diablo players competing against the toss jugglers I thought always thought they had an unfair advantage. Do you, do you agree with that? How do you how do you think about the competitions? You said you yeah. want to compete someday yourself, so I guess you're pro competition. Oh, I love competitions. Like I said, I'm competitive, and especially watching the IRCs, I've seen the value of them, especially in the juggling community where we aren't 
we're competitive in a nice way, right? Most of the time. Like I've yeah. In all my years going to the IJ, I've seen very few people get really upset. I mean, all in all, the majority of people have a great time and are super supportive of each other. But um yeah, in terms of Diablo and other alternative props or whatever being a part of the competition, I honestly think the only reason that in some sense they have an unfair advantage is because of judging. I think that the reason why it feels like Diabloists maybe have an advantage is because when all of the, the panelists on the or all the judge, judges are jugglers and toss jugglers and are like me, where they have no knowledge of Diablo, it can be really hard to fairly judge Diablo. When they're judging juggling really harshly, but then Diablo, they're like, well, it looked impressive and it looked really good. Then it <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't drop, right? Yeah, he didn't drop. They have, they have a lot less drops, yeah. Exactly. So it's like, I think that they can exist on the same stage and I, I honestly think they should. And I think all of the props like contact juggling and hula hooping and all these things should be on that same stage. I love that idea. But I think that we need to be more proactive with making sure judges are knowledged in all of them ahead of time and really know what the equivalents of like dropping are when you're doing a hula hoop right like you can't judge it quite the same way so it's definitely more complicated but i think it's doable that's my opinion yeah i was involved with the uh, the new judging system these categories and i'm always pushing for more risk like what's the risk category like diablo versus five clubs like if someone has two drops but their risk factor is a lot lower Right. It should compare to somebody who's doing a lot more toss juggling, who maybe has 12 drops. Well, and I would say Diablo, for me, actually has more risk in a lot of ways, because when people are doing Diablo, if you mess up, there's like a minute of prep, right? You have to sit there and wind it up again. And so I think that that can be really risky to try a harder trick. Whereas juggling, you just pick it up and you go back into it. And so, yeah, it's hard to judge all these different things together. You know, it'd be like judging ice skating and skiing in the same competition but i think it can be done it's just it's complicated but our community is so small that i don't think it's smart or really possible to like limit who can join or who can participate yeah like i said i think it's a matter like you say of the judging mm -hmm. that if, if, if all the factors are taken into consideration yeah i just think it's easier to have good presentation and to be sort of create a flowing feeling of your juggling through diablo it's able to use the stage more and and express yourself more than if you're juggling, let's say, four or five clubs. So I think there's other elements where all these different categories are affected in presentation and overall execution Yeah. when the, when the risk level is less. Yeah. So this has to be taken into consideration. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a debate we've all been having for years. <laughs> <laughs> years and years. Well, that's why I created the individual prop category, because I like competing one thing against another. I love indie prop for that reason. And I also love that it's so accessible. Like, I feel like I could absolutely compete in indie prop anytime. And so that's awesome. Well, you are an IGA winner because this year you won the IGA Film Festival. True. Yeah. How was that experience? And have you come down from it yet? Or, or is it, are you still living on that high? Honestly, I didn't get a huge high from it. Um, I, posted, oh, no? I posted a video about it, and I posted my short film online. You can find that on my YouTube. But okay. it was a really exhausting experience making the short film because I felt like all this pressure of being, I'm the one juggler who's like in the film industry. So it was just like, well, this better be good. <laughs> We're expecting this to be good, yes. Yeah, and so I put so much time into it. And it honestly, I don't think it looks like I put a lot of time into it because it's just a talking back and forth video. But I put so much time into it. And then seeing all the other amazing 
entries was really great. And, but it was very clear that like mine was the most professional. And so I won, but then I had, I overheard some comments and I had all these insecurities about people saying like, oh, well, hers was better produced, but this other person put a lot more heart into it. And that made me really uncomfortable partly because I just, I don't think you could tell how much heart or time is put into something just based on watching it. But I also agreed in a sense that like these other people definitely put a lot of time into it and I wish everyone could win. And so it kind of made the winning bittersweet just because I listened to other people and I shouldn't have. (laughs) Maybe it didn't need to be a competition. Maybe a film festival just by itself would have been enough without making it a judge thing, perhaps? I honestly, I think it was a really cool experience and and experiment by David Kaye. And I think it's so cool that juggling has had a film contest now. I think that's really cool. But I honestly... I want to approach next year's IJA Fest Director. I want to to approach them and take that same idea, kind of, but make it a little more accessible. Because I think what would be great is if we had a sort of like an Oscars of the juggling video. Hmm. That's funny. I always try to encourage people posting and making videos. And I would love to see the skill level and the quality go up in online videos. I think it'd be cool to as IJ is approaching, take all the videos from 2019 mm. and nominate which ones we think are, you know, the best overall video from 2019 and the best cinematography or the best tricks of 2019 and find categories of juggling videos and the most creative video and the most skilled video and give out little awards that way because then it's more accessible to everybody and anyone across the world can do it. And it's just a great way to like celebrate the work that people are already doing, as opposed to telling people to create this really complicated thing just for the festival. That's a very good idea. That's yeah. A very strong idea. I like that. I guess I, I think Noel, Noel Yee is the next year's festival director. Yeah. I'm going to talk to him about it. And I'd love to get that going because I think it's a great way to just encourage skill and creativity in the filmmaking part of juggling, which I think is what kind of David Kane was wanting to do. So I think taking that same idea, but making it a little more accessible with something that jugglers already know how to do, which is make a cool juggling video. Another sign of your IGA fame is that this year you're enduring Matt Henry's emceeing of the competitions. You're an anagram. I forget what your <laughs> anagram was. What was it? Oh, Taylor? it was a legal try, I think. A legal try. And if you mix up the letters, that spells Taylor Glenn. Yeah. I thought that, that was pretty clever. That was uh, nice. That was fun. <laughs> And it shows that you're part of the, that people know you, that you're definitely a a known member of our community, which is nice. Yeah, I think it's the first time in my life. I mean, like just the last two years, right, since I've been posting online a lot, it was really weird for me to go to IJA and have people come up to me and be like, you're Taylor Tries, oh my gosh, I'm such a fan. Whereas when I'd always go to IJA before, I'd get people knowing who I am because I'm part of the community. But now it was like all of a sudden people were treating me like semi-famous, you know, like I'm West (laughs) Pita and not for skill, but just from being known. And that was super weird. And so being anagrammed is definitely a part of that. Yeah, I've gone the other way. I think I go to festivals now. I'm always surprised how few people know who I am. <laughs> Maybe that's my ego, but like at, the, like, at the EJC, like at the EJC, I'm like, I don't think even half a percentage of these people know anything about me or my career, or, but that, that's the way it is. I, now you also do workshops. Yeah. Uh, what workshops do you teach? I know you teach one on Is it called claymation? Claymotion. Claymotion. It's a confusing name. Claymation is the little clay stop motion Mm -hmm. stuff. 
and claymation is a cool form of juggling. Yeah, I teach that almost every festival I go to. I love it. It's one of my favorite styles of juggling. I have a tutorial on the basics of it online, which is cool if people want to get into it. But uh, also, I teach a lot more in my workshop. So if you're ever at festivals, come to that. And then I also do usually a workshop on four ball mills mess and sometimes five ball mills mess, which is great because those are my favorite tricks. And then... And what are some tips? Because I, I, I don't do four balls mills mess. I never even tried, really, so... You have to come to my workshop, Dan. I have to come to the workshop. But do you have any particular practice tips that overall you use, not just for the four ball mills mess? What's your practice like in general? I mean, do you have a regimented everyday practice or how do you approach your, your skill improvement? It changes depending on how stressed I am at the moment. Uh, before I went to Afghanistan, I was juggling for an hour or two every single day, which was great. Uh, and I would just make a habit of it that I was going to go do that. Since I've gotten back, I've been really in edit mode of finishing projects for the IJ and then also trying to get more content out on my YouTube. It's, it's taken a backseat. So I only go to juggle maybe one or two hours a week now. But even then, I'm proud of that, and that's awesome. And I usually just go, and I have a list of tricks that I practice, and I, I try to get those done. So you have, you have particular tricks you like to work on that you focus on as your priorities. Yeah, a big mentor of mine has been Matt Hall, and he has helped me so much in just knowing how to practice and how to do it in a way that doesn't make you feel burned out, and I'm super thankful for that. So I kind of take on his practice methodology, which is have a clear list and you practice it until you can do it solid, and then you take it off the list and you add a new one. Now, you recently got some coaching from another juggler. True. You were at the IJA Festival. You got help on your Albert throws mm -hmm. by Albert Lucas himself. I did. What, what was that coaching session like, and how long was it, and, and did your Alberts improve? It was kind of surreal, honestly. I mean, everyone who's tried Alberts knows Albert Lucas or knows of him, and you went to the IJA Festival for the first time in a while, I, I believe. Uh, and that was, there was mixed reactions on that and people thinking that he lived up to their expectations of what he wanted to be, they wanted him to be. But for me, I, I found him really nice. He's definitely a personality and he's definitely different than a lot of people I've met. I think that uh, jugglers need to step back a little bit in their judgment of each other because we're all weird and we don't yeah. have any place to judge each other really. And so... I found him super nice, uh, super helpful, and yeah, he just, we were all talking, and I think he started kind of practicing, and then I kind of came over and was like, do you mind if I practice over here? And then he was like, yeah, and then you know, he offered to help me and, and asked me if I wanted help, and I said, yes, of course. <laughs> and then it became this like mini session, and I think he helped me for about an hour, and it was really, really helpful. I'd been practicing Alberts for, a year pretty regularly so I definitely had a foundation but having him there to point out these little subtle details that I didn't really know really helped and it got me past the three catch mark into the four catch mark which doesn't sound like a lot but it was really mm -hmm. hard. <laughs> I did six once. <laughs> Ooh, I'm not there yet. With, with a lot of foot movement though a lot of kind of shifting around. So. Yeah. Now what do you think about somebody getting a trick named after them? I mean Albert Lucas that never saved claims he have invented the that throw. Yeah. But he's the one who made it look so, especially on skates, when he did it on skates. Yeah. And people are like, oh, it's like that throw Albert does, you know. So do you think that that is fair or does that kind of diminish the actual creator of the trick? Right. We're kind of talking about like ownership of a trick, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean. 
my thoughts on that are I, I think that it's definitely right and okay to to claim ownership or even like trademark a certain trick that's a part of an act that you developed that's like a big thing or like a not not even a trick more like a gimmick or or a new thing that's the word i would use gimmick yeah. like if you look at like dan menendez's piano juggling that should be his property yes i agree or um the cone i forgot who what's his name that's greg kennedy greg kennedy imagine west peen copywriting every trick he does and says every trick i invent that's a west peen trick i have ownership of and no one else should do without asking me or giving me credit like i, I have always had a hard time with this i know some jugglers that i respect a lot who are very adamant about, well, if you learn this from somebody or this is their idea, you should give them credit. And I disagree with it in a lot of ways. I mean, I'll always try to show respect to people that I respect, but yeah. I don't think that I owe you anything just because you were alive before me and figured something out before I did. I think that I'm thankful for the, the shoulders that we're standing on as the next generation. Sure. Absolutely. But that doesn't give you a right to prevent me from doing it or to demand anything from me for doing it. And so I think, yeah, absolutely, you can own aspects of a performance. But when it comes to juggling tricks, I, I just don't think that's right. Because those juggling tricks exist whether you came up with it or not. And honestly, for the amount of time that juggling has been around... Yeah, like Albert Lucas has made it popular, right? But he didn't necessarily invent it. In fact, most people have said that he was not the first person to do it. And I think he's very gracious about that. And I don't think he claims to have done that. And I think there are other people in the community who, quote unquote, invented tricks that I think they need to remember that as well. That even though in their current generation, they think they were the first people to do it. I think that the odds of somebody doing it in the 1800s are just as likely. And it's just that we didn't have documentation of it. There's an ego that always needs to be checked with claiming ownership of a thing like a trick, personally. I think we all can agree Albert Throws is a much nicer name than Crotch Throws. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, sorry, uh, Jason. <laughs> I don't want to call it Crotch Throws. Well, <laughs> me neither. Well, you know, what do you think about the WJF? Have you been to one of those? Oh, no, I guess it's uh, SkillCon now. It's SkillCon now. Yeah, I have been. I've been for the last couple of years. In fact, I'm going to be going in about a month to the next one. It's definitely a smaller festival. You know, it's not necessarily my favorite just because of the atmosphere. Um, I, I do feel a little out of place. You know, I'm usually the only female, if not one of two. Yeah. And so that's tough. And on top of that, most of the people that go are younger men, like 20-year-olds, which can also make it tough. The humor that comes along with that or the immaturity, especially around girls, can be <laughs> tough. But I do respect how good the skill level is. Jason, I think, takes a really big initiative to make sure really good people go. And so that's always helpful. I learn a lot of valuable things when I go and, and everything like that. But it is definitely a different atmosphere than most of the other festivals that I tend to enjoy, which is very social. Yeah, I admire what Jason's been able to create. I mean, maybe I don't agree with everything or I've been a bit maybe dismissive over the years of some of the aspects of the, the combat juggling or the things that I don't per particularly gravitate towards. But you have to admire what he's done. Absolutely. It's a pretty, pretty incredible accomplishment. I mean, honestly, it's like I was kind of part of that generation where WJF first was popular and the idea of sport juggling was popular. And I don't know if I would have gotten as into juggling without that kind of sport aspect and people like Boba and pushing this like athletic side of it and I was into sports so for me I definitely love that idea that Jason has helped perpetuate I don't necessarily agree with all the 
the ways he's gone about doing that. And I, I think it could still be stronger than it is. But I, I love the athletic kind of non-performance aspect of it. I think that it should be able to coexist with the performance side as well. And I guess that's what like the numbers competition are, right, at the IJ. One of the things that I always liked about the early WJF days was how there was like a beginner competition and an intermediate competition. So if I wanted to do sport juggling, I could still compete. Whereas at the IJ, if you want to do sport juggling, and I say sport juggling meaning just typical not performing, but competing in that way. And if I want to do that at IJA, I have to do numbers. And I just, it's not possible, right? Like, there's no way I'm going to get to do that. So there is that aspect of WJF. Now, that being said, every year that I've gone, they don't have an intermediate division because there's not enough people. And so I still can't compete, which sucks. Because <laughs> I'm not good well, enough to be in advance. And I'm definitely too good to be a beginner. <laughs> so. Well, we, got, we have next year, right? We have El Paso. We have all the things coming up. You have Game of Throws. Yeah. And what's coming up for Taylor Glenn? What's the future hold for you? We're pretty much at the end of our podcast. We've done over an hour and it's gone by very fast. Yeah. So what's what's next for you? What's next for me? Well, I'll be at SkillCon. And then next year, you know, I'm pretty open. I'm hoping to develop a really good routine over the next six months that I can start shopping around again and going to festivals. Uh, I definitely want to go to IJ. I always go to IJ. So you will see me in El Paso for sure. Hopefully helping run some film festival thing. And then I would love to go to the Mexico convention again, because that was honestly incredible. (laughs) So those are the two that are super on my radar. And those are the only two that I can promise that I'm going to be at right now. But yeah, hopefully there will be a lot more. And of course, you'll be putting out more content and people can check you out on Taylor Tries on YouTube. Give us all all your contact information where people can see you. There's probably a lot. On YouTube, I'm definitely posting a lot of tutorials and just videos every week. So uh, you should go check that out. My my YouTube is Taylor Tries. And then on Instagram, I post multiple times a week of little tricks and fun things that I'm trying. And you can find me at, at Taylor underscore Tries on there. And Facebook, it's Taylor Tries as well. Other than that, the other thing that I've been doing is Twitch, which is a game streaming site, and I have been playing some video games. So if anyone wants to go watch me play video games, you can find me on Twitch, Taylor Tries. And what about if people want to support you? Do you have a Patreon link where people can go and support the travels and adventures of Taylor Glenn? I do, Dan. Thanks for bringing it up. (laughs) Sure, of course. Patreon is definitely valuable for me. Like I said earlier, I don't make a lot of money doing most of my social media, and so having that support of the community really means a lot to me. So if anyone wants to support and become a member of my Otter Club, which is what it's called, you get a lot of cool insider goodies like blooper reels and early access to videos and keychains and even juggling balls. So you can head over to my Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash Taylor Tries. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you so much for being on the Drop Everything podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. A big hand, everybody, for the wonderful, talented, YouTube sensation and film festival winner and T-1000, whatever that is. Yeah. Taylor Glenn. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks. Woo. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast number 75, my conversation with Taylor Glenn. Don't forget, visit her social media, support her on Patreon, and look for all the great things Taylor's going to be doing in the future with both video and juggling. Let's thank our sponsor one more time, the International Jugglers Association. They can be found at juggle.org. Do a lot of great things for jugglers around the world, so check out this great organization of jugglers. It's almost Christmas time. Maybe you want to buy yourself a Ring Dama or one of my books available at Amazon.com. All right, go out in the world, drop everything, 
except when you're juggling.